arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present that immortal character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. <laughs> this week's story, The Adventure of the Curious Crypt. It was cold down here, Miss Two. Black as pitch. Can't see a thing. Quick, Watson, the lantern. Just look about and see if... Holmes, listen. Someone's walking on the roof of the tomb. Yes, Watson. We have a visitor. He's opening the crypt door. Ah, the inimitable Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes immersed himself in details. Forensically, Holmes could instantly spot abnormalities. Jones likes intuitively connecting the dots, and usually that does not comport with the running narrative by the cops of the courts. It's called his side road theory. In the Prince William Slasher, one of those connecting dots beginning a side road theory is the sound of a motorcycle vanishing into the night from the murder scene. The police have the modus operandi of duct tape, gin splashed on the victim, and of course the razor slashed throat. For Jones, he begins thinking about the Devineau case back two years ago in Hamilton. No gin or duct tape, but a razor-cut murder. And the sound of a lawnmower. All basic stuff. But then he gets a call from the slasher. The slasher talks about the play, a college football play from years ago. The slasher's voice is creepy. William slasher. And why would the slasher call him? Let's listen to the play. probably try to swim it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rodgers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. Jones has been complimented by Lieutenant Kevin Phillips for his work in Cleveland hunting down his father's killer. Perhaps the slasher doesn't want Jones looking into the slasher murders. And what of Holmes? <laughs> you know, Holmes, I must congratulate you. I've never seen you conduct a more brilliant investigation. Thank you, Watson. Perhaps I should add some old-time radio organ music for this one. Episode 2 of the Prince William Slasher by R.P. Fitton begins now. The Marlborough Inn, Hamilton, New Hampshire. Coco had informed Jones that there were three payphones left in Prince William. One at Manny's Bolorama on East Crescent Street. Second phone was positioned outside the police station entrance and a third on a telephone pole along the docks off Canal Street. Phillips informed Jones that a squad of officers had descended on the Canal Street payphone along the docks. The phone had been deliberately wiped clean of fingerprints. Jones stroked his chin and could not figure why the killer had become fixated on him. No witnesses to the phone call could be found. 
He pushed open the Marlboro's glass doors and tried to shake the case from his thoughts. From under the columns, the common was like a golf course, green in the afternoon light. He was drawn to the for sale sign along the front of the white colonial with black shutters on the corner of Shore Road. The picket fence was missing pickets, and others were rotted. Yet the house looked freshly painted. It was centrally located and historic. Ahead, the yellow Enterprise building, a row of trees lining the building, stood level on the hill less than 50 yards up the street from the Marlboro. A small blue pickup rumbled onto the sidewalk, and Jones leaped back. Arnie Dewis, cigarette planted in his mouth, left the door open and the engine running as he stumbled around the hood. Hey, Matthias! Not now, Arnie. I have a meeting. Tom McGill. Watch out for McGill. He wrote a whole pack of lies about me in an editorial last year. Oh, I'm shocked, said Jones as he tried to step forward toward the Enterprise. My lawyer says we still have a case. Yeah, right. I'll talk to you later, Arnie. We never imported those nails from Zamboni. And he said when the hammer hit the nail, it bent like a piece of macaroni. Jones gawked at Arnie. Where did you get the nails, Arnie? Good old USA. Where were they shipped from? Hey, I can't be responsible where the middleman gets his materials. I'll remember that when I buy my house, said Jones. I heard the old man was going to build you a house on Fletcher Hill. I won't even ask where you heard that, said Jones, finally stepping past Arnie. Lester. Then Jones stopped. For several seconds, he debated whether to turn around, but he finally did. Lester Larson. Whoops. Jones marched back to Arnie as he threw the cigarette near the lawnmower. Is he back in town? I don't know nothing. I understand that, but where is he, Arnie? Don't know. Maybe he's hiding out. Do you know that man is wanted in Indiana for breaking jail? It was a false arrest, Muddy said. How would he know? asked Arnie, lighting a cigarette with his hands shaking. Jones noticed the spiraling smoke trail on the grass. He hurried over to the grass as Arnie raced back to his truck. He rumbled up the sidewalk for 50 feet and did not shut his driver's door until he was back on the road. Jones stomped on the cigarette. As he moved along the sidewalk, Jones watched himself in the bronze frame windows. He passed a shiny red suburban and moved up the front walk. When he opened the glass door, the gray mustache McGill looked up from his desk. He stood and met Jones with a firm handshake. It's you. How do you know it's me? asked Jones with a smile. Who else would it be? asked McGill, returning the smile. Please sit down, Matthias Jones. Jones slipped into a green leather recliner. He secured his hands on the chair arms. This is comfortable. Grink? Oh, I'm fine, Tom. Thanks. How does Matthias Jones like New England? You know, I really do like it here. Well, good. I guess when you win the National High School Championship, you can call the shots on a college position. Wasn't my intention to leave Wabash Corners. I was contacted, you know, with Locke Larson leaving. Mr. Fletcher himself? Well, eventually I talked to Hamilton Fletcher. He said, leaving Coco out of the conversation. Good, said McGill, pretending to cover his mouth. He spoke in a lower voice. There's a lot of pasture land in Hamilton for Lark to graze in in retirement. Jones smiled as McGill stood. Let me get the file on the Devereux murder. McGill headed for a side office. He returned with a thick stack of tight papers and two bottled waters. Just in case. 
Darlene Devereaux's autopsy, the police report, and witnesses. And the case is unsolved? It is. Same razor slice to the neck as the slasher. Jones kept thinking back to last night and the slash across Holly's neck. Why no murders for two years? Unknown. Could be unrelated. I asked George Strickland to stop by. He originally investigated the murder before the FBI screwed it up. Jones nodded and looked around. Let me guess, you founded the Enterprise. Actually, I bought the Enterprise from my old boss. Uh, that's a story in itself. McGill slid his pen over his yellow pad. Now, according to a witness, you were inside Club Max when the girl was killed. Jones nodded, still shaken by her death. Did she leave the club with anyone? Not that I saw. I was going to talk to her later at the bar, but then someone named Darcy ran inside and got Coco. They all raced outside and I followed. You see anything unusual? Big Junior saw a gray-hooded driver in a trench coat on a small motorcycle taking off and fading into the night. There was blood on the pavement and blood on Holly's arm and dress. Why on the arm if there's only one slash? Asked McGill as the phone rang. You'll have to get the medical examiner's report, Tom. McGill answered the phone. Yes, Susan, I will. You too. Jones grinned as McGill hung up. Wife? She would like me to pick up two gallons of milk on my way home. Woman liked the security. Well, so do men. We just don't admit it. Right. We keep our trade secrets to ourselves. Then he leaned forward. This is off the record. There's one maxim I live by since Susan and I moved up here. What's that? When Hamilton Fletcher is happy, everyone's happy. I'll second that, said Strickland as he entered through the front door. He was still in uniform. I have to meet the trustees this afternoon at Fletcher Hill, George, said Jones. And I have Tom McGill's other maxim. Let me know if there's anything I need to know. Well, I will. Wendell told me that Arnie Dewis was driving on the sidewalk after talking to you, Matthias, said Strickland. He did. George, he let slip that Lester Larson is back in Hamilton, said Jones. I heard rumors, well, from Wendell. He set his cap on the sofa. Arnie hinted that Muddy Jacobs knows something about Lester's whereabouts. I'll send Wendell down to talk to Muddy. He looked over at Jones. Gallagher said you spent the night at the rectory. Yeah, after I finished talking to Kevin Phillips, it was late. George, this boutique owner, Darlene Devernow, why wasn't it solved? Well, she had been in Boston buying clothing. She parked her Mercedes behind the building when she got back, entered the building from the rear, and filed away purchase orders in her filing cabinets. This was on a Saturday night. Yes, she made a phone call at 9.45 p.m. to her sister in Prince William. Any other family members? Husband. Divorced, said McGill. Lives in the state of Washington. No children. I placed several calls to the guy, but never got a call back. Doors locked in the boutique? asked Jones. Yes, said Strickland. All the windows locked. And she was slashed from behind, throat cut, just like all the others. Strickland shook his head. I still don't know how the murderer got out. I thought maybe the killer removed the spare key, but it was under the rock outside. No prints. Why did he kill her, George? Was there any crossover evidence, hair color, body type, occupation? Nothing. Just Saturday night, said Jones. What did her friend say? Pia thought it was random, said Strickland. Her friend? Her rich friend. Pia was there? 
No, she was looking into her friend's death. It wasn't until last year that Pia tracked down Angela Lopez. Angela thought that Lester rode by on his motor scooter. Well, she saw the scooter and assumed it was Lester because he parked in the athletic shed. Lester got Hamilton Fletcher involved and denied being there. And now we have a motor scooter or cycle on all four slasher murders, said Jones. Where does Angela live? She doesn't, said Strickland. What are you saying, George? Oh, she wasn't murdered. Angela was in a car accident about a year ago in Newtown, Black Ice. Jones put his hands on his hips. This wasn't in your report, George. Came out later. Jones turned to Strickland. Not that I'm suspicious, but what about the accident report? Icy road on a side street. She hit a tree at 53 miles an hour. Not everything is suspicious, Matthias. Generally, I trust people, George, but when people start getting murdered, I throw it all out the window. Well, that car is long gone, said McGill. Strickland gestured with his hands. I can get you the accident report from Prince William P.D. Jones smiled. As a matter of fact, George, I'd love to have some evening reading. Are you this meticulous as a coach? Worse. Now what about Devereaux's social life? Darlene was in the social scene and Prince William knew a lot of people. We worked with Pearson from the FBI, said Strickland. Months went by and there was no readily apparent killer and they told me to back off. Just that the blade was old and somewhat rusty. The FBI said that, asked Jones. McGill fiddled with his pen. Came down from the agent in charge, Pearson. What did the rest of the report say? Ah, just the forensics, a statement from Lopez and no murder weapon. Did the blade line up? You know, any imperfections that might match? McGill shook his head. Just that the blade was old and somewhat rusty. Leave out any criticism of the FBI, Tom, said Strickland. McGill saluted. Jones stared out the window, his eyes moist as he thought of Holly. You know, I was in front of my laptop for almost two hours last night watching that game from 1982. I did too, after you called me, said Strickland. For the life of me, it makes no sense. If we're looking for some code, we're not going to find it. I figure this, it shouldn't have happened, and it looked as though they practiced all those laterals. It was spontaneous. Exactly. Maybe the slasher has no control. But why use that game? asked Strickland. I don't know, George. McGill wrote something down on his pad. Taking notes, Tom? asked Strickland. Just a note to watch the play. Holly was a beautiful kid. Jones cleared his throat, but then he changed the conversation. Gallagher had mentioned one of the boys in his parish. I saw that kid throw over 60 yards this morning. How did Lark recruit his players? Strickland raised his brows and lingered between a smile and a frown. He advertised in some college directory called Sign Em Up. It sounds logical. Well, it would be, except it shared the space with some wild singles ads. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. I get it. It was free, right? Correct. McGill leaned toward both men. Locke would sign him up and then bellow out, I brought him in on a wing and a prayer. Jones stared with his mouth open and shook his head. Gentlemen, I am on my way to Fletcher Hill, a.k.a. Mount Olympus. You'll do fine. The old man wants to show you off said Strickland. And by the way, Mary and I want to invite you over to dinner sometime. Don't do it, said McGill. You'll have to sit out in those Adirondack chairs and listen to the ocean. You've had a good time when you came out, Tom. Yeah, Susan and I both. But George, we really should wait till the thermometer goes over 30. 
Matthias, bundle up, said Strickland, grinning. No more schnapps for you, McGill. Prince William Slasher, Chapter 6. Fletcher Hill, 1 Fletcher Drive, Hamilton, New Hampshire. Jones smelled the cigar smoke outside the Fletcher drawing room. Hamilton Fletcher clawed the mahogany conference table as if he were going to steer thoughts of all the trustees toward a direction where he wanted them to go. And remember, we're here to make money for Hamilton College, said Hamilton Fletcher in his light-colored suit. However, since Lester Lawson has, how shall I say, departed the scene, we'll be seeking a full-time security individual. I have a man from New York City I'm bringing up to secure the campus, especially in the light of this slasher business. Coach Matthias Jones, proclaimed Hollings as Jones entered the room. Hamilton Fletcher swung around and his face ignited when he saw Jones. The trustee stood. Within a few seconds, Hamilton Fletcher had slipped his arm over Jones's shoulder. Thank you, Hollings, and welcome, my boy. He turned to the trustees. Trustees of Hamilton College, meet your new coach, Matthias Jones. As they applauded, Jones's cell phone rang. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, answer it, ordered Hamilton Fletcher. Maybe it's a new recruit. Well, I insist. Okay, excuse me. Matthias Jones. You're excused, said Kevin Phillips, chuckling. Hello, Kevin, said Jones, stepping outside the drawing room. I have an important witness. Just after Withers was killed, Junior... Oh, I met Junior. He remembers everything. Coco said he has a ridiculous memory. He works for the highway department in Prince William. He says he heard a motor scooter before and after Withers was killed. I guess he went out to his car for some extra cash. He bets money on darts. He went outside after Darcy told everyone the woman had been killed. Junior saw a hooded driver in a trench coat as the motorcycle headed north toward the Devonshires. Very dark. He gave us two numbers of a tag, which we're working on. You mean toward Hamilton, said Jones. Exactly. We've notified George Strickland the motorcycle or scooter had very high punk handlebars. Junior said that motor didn't have much power. I'm still thinking that Darlene Devernow was related, said Jones. Well, keep digging. Oh, by the way, Mayor Picotta is taking political heat about the slasher. He's going on the air tonight. What about Herbert Lane? <laughs> He's in Bermuda, hiding. Call me when you have something. Will do, Kevin. Jones returned to the room as Hamilton Fletcher grilled a middle-aged man in a vest and white shirt. He had curly brown hair and a very odd beaked nose. He had been sneering at Jones ever since he entered the room. Now, Maynard, he said, pointing, you know I like the bottom line, and if your bank is going to charge extra fees, it impacts my bottom line. You tell those bozos at Prince William Credit I'll come over there myself. I think your man has returned. Matthias, this is Maynard Hall. Maynard's been a trustee for 14 years. He was Lark's biggest supporter. Oh. And why you were a cheerleader for Lark Larson, Maynard, is beyond me. When I go to a Hamilton game, I want to throw up, said a hefty lady in back. Well, don't do it here, Mary. Hall, related to you, sir? asked Jones. Yes. I am the second cousin from Britain. I don't like to change the status quo. Status quo means losing, said Jones, extending his hand. 
Exactly, added Hamilton. Maynard never shook Jones's hand. Football in Britain is like soccer. I left Britain behind, Jones. You weren't hired to coach soccer. We'll win playing American football, said Jones. Sure you will. Never mind the editorial comment, Maynard, said Hamilton. I'm having dinner with Malcolm Hayes and his wife in Boston tonight. I need to get down to business now. Where the hell is Pia? That woman is perpetually tardy, said Maynard. And perpetually rich, replied Hamilton Fletcher under his breath. Jones raised his brows. Well, she's probably on to the next one. L.A. woman, said the husky lady. Isn't that a song by the doors? asked a man with a cigar smoldering in a metal ashtray. Will you people stop your chattering, yelled Hamilton Fletcher. A well-dressed, gray-haired man stepped around Maynard. I'm L.G. Bentley. Besides being Maynard's neighbor, I practice law in this town, or I try to. Hamilton Fletcher raised his index finger. Never mind the resume, L.G. If I'm not mistaken, Hamilton, you're the one who called this meeting to meet the coach. Isn't that what you said? Oh, well, I've learned not to argue with you, L.G. Jones's phone rang again. Oh, for Pete's sake, what are you running, an answering service here, Matthias? Oh, let him answer the phone, said Mary. Oh, I need a drink, Matthias Jones. Jonesy, Coco. Coco. I'll have a Tom Collins, said Maynard. I'm getting scotch for everyone, he looked at Maynard. You go mix your Tom Collins and get sloshed on your own time, Maynard. Coco began on the phone. Listen, cops have just cleared the crime tape out of the club's parking lot. Tell everybody we're open. I've got extra security here from Boston. Sure, I'll spread the word. God, it's making a speech tonight. I heard. I had to slip him money to tell people the club had nothing to do with Holly's murder. Hamilton handed Jones a scotch. Well, let me call you back. What do you mean, call me back? What are you, with a check? No, Hamilton Fletcher. Give the old man my regards. I'll talk to you. Hamilton Fletcher turned to Jones. I understand you had difficulty getting your guy Williams from Indiana as an assistant coach. Well, he must be busy. Well, I have contacts in Florida. We have a candidate for that position. Fine player. I'll let you know. Yeah, well, as long as it isn't that bumbler, Froggy Finley, said Mary. Froggy is finished, Mary, said Hamilton Fletcher. You look familiar, said Jones. Well, she owns MBD Corporation. Big Mama's Donuts. Mary Mobley. Hello, Mary, said Jones. You're not going to demand free donuts of me, are you? No, of course not. Mary nodded her head as she spoke. Locke was handing out my donuts all the time. Sure, he wasn't paying for them. Locke Larson gave a lot to this town, said Maynard. Yeah, well, so do the horses in my barns across the street. Now, Matthias, this is Milt Abrams from Abrams Realty here in town. He and his daughter, Masha, own the family business. Abrams picked up the smoldering cigar. Good luck there, Jones. Uh, of course, if you win one ball game, you'll be a hero. Now, Mrs. Pringle is buying down in New York, said Hamilton. Her family owns ten stores in New Hampshire and northern Massachusetts. Flaky, real flaky. Jones's cell sounded again. Oh, don't mind us, said Hamilton Fletcher. Jones veered toward the door. A sweet perfume wave swept over him. 
A short woman, blonde hair pinned up, wore a wave of colorful fabric that streamed behind her as she entered the room. She stopped and ran her eyes up and down Jones's body. Jones let the call go into voicemail. Well, it's about time, Pia. At least 15 years Jones's senior, Pia raised her wide designer sunglasses. Her green eyes were vibrant and bright. Her skin smooth as she quickly flashed her whitened smile at Jones. A stream of seductive perfume now enveloped Jones. Her nails were painted solid red and her rouge not overdone. Even though she was older, Jones found her incredibly enticing. This is Pia Maria. She owns half of downtown Prince William, said Hamilton. Her voice was subtle, almost raspy. Thank you, Hamilton. That's nice of you to say. Jones wondered how Pia became friends with Darlene Deverno. Pia unfolded her hand like she was rolling out the red carpet. Rather than kiss her smooth skin, Jones shook her hand. Pia seemed taken aback. Again, she looked Jones over as if she were buying a racehorse. Can I call you? asked Jones. Why, uh, yes, I insist. Oh, for Pete's sake, Jones, you don't waste any time. No, about the Deverno murder, said Jones, turning back to Hamilton. Let me know, she said, her voice softer, almost seductive. When the phone rang again, Jones took the call. Matthias Jones. Matthias! Not now, Arnie. Muddy says he'll get his shotgun out if you go to look for Lester at the dump. Arnie, I really don't care what Muddy does. You should. He's a crack shot. Is that Doers? asked Hamilton Fletcher, leaning toward Jones. Jones nodded, and Hamilton swiped the phone. You listen to me, doers, you dim-witted do-nothing. Your old man would tan your hide if he were alive, and he knew how you were operating that lumber yard. Hello? Hello? Doers? Doers? Jones sidestepped back into the room behind Hamilton Fletcher. P.S. slowly grinned and then coyly looked away. Her rouge accentuated her inviting lips. L.G. Bentley stood up and raised his empty scotch glass. Mr. Dewis is living proof that even an orangutan can run a business. Jones strolled from the Marlboro, past the white clabbered First Parish Church, down the hill across from the common. Near sunset, the shadow split the sunshine on the yellow early spring grass. To his left, Franny moved her plastic trash barrel out for morning pickup. She waved to Jones as he approached. Are you going to watch the speech tonight, Matthias? The Prince William Mayor? Jones stepped up to the curb. Her blue eyes were bright in the evening sun. I've heard they've broken the case. Where'd you hear that, Franny? Wendell. Jones raised his brows. I know, but he is a cop. You want a beer? Jones looked up to the porch of the two-story white house. So you live in walking distance of the Colonial House, and yes, I'd love a beer. Come on up. You can watch Picarda with me. She looked more like a country girl in her jeans and flannel shirt. The television news echoed around the living room to the left. Franny removed a silver can from the refrigerator and a glass from the cabinet. Did your friend from Indiana call you? You mean about the assistance job? No, not yet. Woozy must be away. Plus, I think Hamilton Fletcher has some player from Florida lined up. What if he's no good? asked Franny, sitting on the hassock. I'm not hiring another Froggy Finley if that's what you're worried about. Franny pointed at the TV. The announcer broke into regular programming. We are now awaiting the arrival of Mayor Vincent Picotta here at City Hall. 
The mayor will be responding to the most recent attack of the killer known as the Prince William Slasher in the parking lot of a popular local nightclub. Money talks, Coco. What was that, Matthias? I'm sure Coco doesn't want the club's reputation sullied. You mean any more than it already is? She said, drinking some water. Jones smiled as the gray-haired Picada, a shot man in a dark pinstripe suit and yellow tie, walked across the courthouse rotunda. Behind him were several police officers and half a dozen men in suits. He looks as if he's in the mob, said Jones. Franny raised her brows and tilted her head toward Jones. My uh, fellow citizens of Prince William, our ongoing investigation of the death of Holly Winters should assure you, my fellow citizens, that we had the situation well in hand. What's he talking about? He has five murders on his watch, said Jones. Oh, he's a slick one, Matthias. Security at Club Max, I am told, has been enhanced by professionals where the patrons can feel confident they'll be safe from this crazed killer. We will... As Chief Pacheco will tell you, be adding additional police patrols throughout the city. Picada's eyes wandered back and forth as he spoke. This city has always banded together to stop the forces of evil. Who is he, Batman? asked Jones. He thinks he is, said Franny. Jones' cell rang. Excuse me. Jonesy, are you watching this dime store flatfoot? asked Coco. Terrible speech, said Jones. Coco, I think Lester Larson is back in town. That's just wonderful, Jonesy. Let him come back. I haven't got time for him. I got other problems here. In conclusion, let us face a new and bright future together, said Picada. Thank you and sayonara. Sayonara? asked Coco. Vinny was never very much in the brains department. From what I see, the cops have made zero progress in finding the slasher. I think you're right, said Jones, as the wavy-haired Prince William police chief, Don Pacheco, began answering questions from the press. Vinny doesn't get his act together, they'll run somebody else. Herbert Lane should be here, he's the D.A. Lane and his wife are in Bermuda, Jonesy. I know. For election time, he'd be right there on camera. This slasher thing is bad for business, what do you think? Jones wanted to tell him about the old blood but he kept his confidence with Phillips. Thinking about the motorcycle, the one with high-rise bars. Yeah, Junior saw it. Why are all the murders on Saturday night? I think the murder in Hamilton two years ago was the beginning of all this. I met this Negrigio woman at the trustees meeting. I need to talk to her about her friend Daverno. Daverno was murdered. And what if it was the same scooter that was involved in the slasher killings? Coco, this is about the murder of Darlene Derino. The slasher thing is getting crazy. Tell me about it. The receipts from the club are down by a third. Not good. I'll talk to you. You and Coco became friends in Cleveland, said Franny. It's weird. I liked him right from the start. I'm not involved with certain elements. The mafia? Well, we don't know that. Franny gave him the okay sign. I still like him. Friendships are like that. Some people being friends just can't be explained. Jones nodded. You want to walk around the common? I'm not familiar with anything here in town.
Sure, let me get my vest, she said. Jones balanced his chin on his propped fingers. He watched Pacheco, still answering questions on TV, but the Prince William chief had no answers. A few times he deferred to the state troopers in their green and gray uniforms. Sounds like a bunch of BS, said Franny, as she adjusted her red Hamilton College sweatshirt. That's because it is, said Jones, standing. Where does Negrigio live? The Cherokee in Prince William, said Franny, leaning closer. She spoke in a low tone. Exclusive. Franny, I have trouble finding the Atlantic Ocean. She opened up the front door. The cooler air focused his thoughts. Strickland's police reports aren't informative either. Negrigio had nothing to say. George interviewed her four times, just vague ramblings about her friend Darlene. George was pretty frustrated by the whole investigation at the time, and I don't know why. They moved down her front walk and onto the sidewalk. Which way, Matthias? How about walking down by that big church? First Parish, the Fletcher's Church. I suppose Hamilton runs that church, too. Well, they do have pews in front of the church. Do they own them? You could say that. Jones threw his head back and laughed. Incredible! They don't call this town Hamilton for nothing. Franny, what do you know about Lester Larson? She closed her eyes and shook her head. You have to understand that everyone in town loves Lark, so they tolerate Lester. Is there some blackmail going on here about Lark or Lester? Franny shrugged her shoulders. I don't think Lester had a police record before Indiana. He was jailed, right? He was. He plowed down mailboxes, and then he escaped through the canine entrance. Now Franny laughed, exposing her large teeth. Roof, roof, roof. No comment, said Jones, grinning toward the church's spiraling steeple. From what Hamilton says, the Fletchers have been here for hundreds of years. They in the halls are buried in the graveyard, she said, pointing, up there on the hill. One of the trustees is a cousin from Britain, Maynard Hall. I met him. He's a first-class snob, and he didn't like me. I can understand that, said Franny, laughing. But he wanted no changes in the football program, Franny. He and Locke were tight. He covered for Locke's disasters. Why? asked Jones. Before my mother moved to Florida, she used to ask that question. She thought Maynard was the front man for Locke. Jones shrugged his shoulders. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just here to coach and solve murders. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. She pointed both index fingers at him. Holly being killed bothers you, and now it's in your craw. Of course, I was right there. The poor girl was murdered. And from what I can see, your dad must have taught you to find answers. Jones stopped. You've got me all figured out, haven't you? She nodded as he heard a buzzing beyond the common back toward town. Do you hear that? I do. The noise faded toward the college and then stopped. Motorbike or motorcycle? Jones looked back at Franny. I can't start plugging in answers where there are none. Who said that, your dad? No, me, said Jones as they approached a stone clock tower maybe 30 feet high. Does this clock work? Oh, it keeps breaking down. They keep fixing it. It was a gift from Damien Hall, a trader 150 years ago. He made a fortune after the Civil War. Guess he wanted the citizens of Hamilton to know what time it was since no one ever seemed to know the time. Interesting, said Jones as a battered red pickup rounded Shore Road, the tires screeching along the white colonial at the corner. What a knucklehead. Muddy Jacobs, she said. 
Muddy Jacobs, asked Jones. Do you think he's hiding Lester at the landfill? Franny, I discount nothing. He looked back at the Abrams for sale sign in front of the Colonial's white picket fence. I like that Colonial. Have Marsha Abrams give you a tour. I doubt I could afford it. Jones took two steps forward. I like the way it's at the end of Shore Road and leads to the beaches, yet it faces the common in the town. It was owned by Dr. Donald Collins. Don was a professor at the college. Nice man. Don was in assisted living in Prince William when he died. No relatives. His wife, Dorothy, died 15 years ago. What did he teach? You won't believe it. Try me. Criminology. I want that house. The Prince William Slasher, Chapter 7. Town Common, Hamilton, New Hampshire. Jones rumbled away from the Marlboro in the sputtering van. He exhaled as if he were blowing up a balloon and placed another call to Woozy. The man Hamilton Fletcher had chosen as assistant coach, Carl Rogers, liked to party, according to the newspapers in Miami. Guys, how's it going? Asked Woozy on a wavy cell signal. I'm liking this place, Wooz. Well, good. I did get your messages. I've been going round and round with the wife. Kids don't want to move, but more than that, we have our horses here. You've been out to the farm. I have. Carl Rogers isn't exactly the type of guy I want backing me up on the field. You're a very good defensive coach, Woozy. I appreciate the alkalite, but uh, we're up to me. I coach college ball in a second. I know. Plus, Rogers was a player. He has no experience coaching. You mean like you when you took over Wabash? Jones grinned. That's what I like about you, Woozy. You tell it like it is. If you don't tell it like it is, then it isn't. Well, if you change your mind or their minds, and if you just want to come up here, you're under no obligation. Thanks. Good luck, Matthias. Bye, Woos. He stared at the phone. You sound just like Hamilton Fletcher, Jones. Under no obligation? Jones pulled the shaking van to the curb at Shore Road. He looked along the white picket fence. The lawn needed trimming, and one of the front shutters should have been replaced. A row of arborvitae extended from the fence down the sidewalk. His cell sounded. Matthias Jones. Matthias, it's George. George, it's Matthias. Very funny. I'm going to be a few minutes late at the landfill. I have to locate Webster Howard, the handyman. We have problems with the boardwalk behind our house. It'll only be a few minutes. No problem, George. I have a feeling Muddy knows more than he's letting on. Van stalled and then Jones pulled away from the Colonial, but he watched the second floor windows in the rearview mirror. He wanted to buy the house, but he knew he didn't have the finances to purchase the property. Shore Road straightened as it sloped past the highway department. Ahead were rows of straight pines in an area labeled Town Forest. For a few minutes, Jones dreamed about living in the Colonial. How long would he live there? Would he ever get married? Behind him, an orange Mustang with a raised hood and a black shadow box spun wide tires and moved into the other lane. In the driver's seat, the large-nosed Froggy Finley laughed like a hyena out of the cage. He waved his Hamilton baseball cap and hit the side of his Mustang as he accelerated in the opposite lane. An 18-wheeler truck sounded its horn as it approached from the beach. 
Froggy increased his speed and whipped onto the opposite road shoulder, kicking up the swirling dirt as he traveled at speeds probably close to a hundred miles an hour. Somehow he squeezed between the truck and the woods. The air from the truck pushed the van and Jones slowed. Idiot! Froggy blended into the blue ocean in the distance and Jones put on his blinker at the landfill sign. Town of Hamilton, landfill and transfer station. A series of metal structures had transfer trucks backed up to the openings. Ahead, a huge landfall mound boarded the woods and railroad tracks in the rear. A small whitewashed cottage and a movable gate allowed access to the inner area. Muddy, in his smeared undershirt, wore a tatted Red Sox cap as he let each car proceed. Jones shook his head at the absurdity of Lester hiding in the mounds of trash. Muddy waved the little green Subaru in front of Jones through the gate. But as Jones pulled up, Muddy's eyes popped below his cap visor. Then he crouched and squinted. Jones pushed down the van's driver's side window. Muddy, how are you this morning? You're in violation, he said, pointing. I can't let you in. You don't have an official Hamilton dump trash sticker. I don't have any trash. Everybody has trash, smart boy. Plus, your engine is loud. His blue eyes fixated on Jones as if he were a criminal. Well, I just have a few questions. You get out of here, I'll call the cops. Where's Lester Larson? Muddy stood up straight and looked skyward. He placed his hands behind his back. He began whistling. Lester Larson is in Canada. Nice try. You're hiding him here. This is a public transfer station and the landfill is not a hotel, coach. A few people in line began beeping their horns. Now look what you've done. You're going to be fined, big shot. The doer's lumber truck downshifted outside the line of cars. Muddy waved the truck forward. Arnie Dewar stuck his head out the window. Hey, Muddy! Jones exhaled, and with Muddy screaming, he raced forward toward the doer's truck. Muddy waved his hands and gave Jones a few borderline gestures. Arnie backed the truck toward the edge of the landfill hill. Then he leaped out of the truck. Arnie! Arnie, cigarette hanging from his mouth, pushed his dark-rimmed glasses up his nose. Matthias! Arnie, I need to talk to you. Need a little advice, do you? Right. Yeah, you can start by hiring back Froggy Finley. Froggy's done. Bad move. Real bad move. Froggy was one of the true geniuses to graduate from Hamilton High. Yeah, a real bright bulb. That's not what I want to talk to you about. Jones looked up at the paint bucket stacked in the truck. You sure you can dump that paint here? When you got connections, you can do anything. You're dumping chemicals. Hey, for a guy who just got into town, you don't know how to mind your own business. Jones noticed a crate of food, including Big Mama's donuts, on the passenger side seat. Going on a picnic, Arnie? Huh? All that food. Oh, that's uh, garbage. That right. Time is money. I gotta unload the truck. Unless you want to help. I'm not dumping chemicals, Arnie. Ah, you worry too much. Jones walked by a small yellow bulldozer and then along the trash hill. Ahead, the blue ocean framed the breakers and the shoreline. Only the forest obscured the view directly ahead. A swamp-filled wooded area rose to the railroad bed. He looked over his shoulder as Arnie began hurling five-gallon buckets of paint onto the trash mounds. Strickland's cruiser passed the other cars and pulled up alongside the Dewar's truck. 
He did a double take as Arnie looped two paint buckets into the air. Hey, Arnie, what are you doing? Arnie's eyes opened wide. Georgie, good morning. Arnie, I want you to pick up all those paint buckets you've thrown in the pile and put them back in the truck. Then you can bring them to the transfer station and pay like everyone else. Arnie placed his hand over his lower back. Oh, my back. I, I knew it would pop. My vertebrates are misaligned. Your cerebellum is misaligned. Now call somebody down at the yard and have them come over and pick up those damn paint buckets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jones waved Strickland over to the van. He spoke in a lower voice. George, I think Lester is here at the landfill. Someday Arnie's going to cause a major catastrophe. Someday? asked Jones. Why do you say Lester is here at the dump? The way Muddy's acting, and Arnie has a box of food on his front seat. Well, we'll see about that. No, George, wait. Give Arnie enough rope. I'd like to. Let's see where he brings that food. Strickland closed his eyes briefly as Arnie lifted a paint bucket into the truck and then moaned about his back. What a faker. You need another rental. I know, I know. Strickland sat behind the wheel in the town forest overlook. Jones tracked Arnie's smaller pickup into the landfill. You know, he never picked up those other buckets, Matthias. Jones panned the landfill in the swampy woods below. Arnie is an expert on getting out of work. I read the bulletin from Sheriff Boynton in Indiana. Lester is in serious trouble. He could get double-digit prison time. Man has a screw loose. Figures Arnie and Muddy would be in on this. Are you going to charge them? I don't know. I'm more concerned about the slasher. Me too. I guess Bacotta's speech didn't poll well. People are more afraid than before the speech. Kevin Phillips told me that you clued him in onto the other blood type at the murder scene. Type O. And the Withers woman was type A. Right, I think the killer cut himself on a blade. Phillips checked the hospitals. Nobody treated for a razor wound last week. Even the people here in Hamilton are calling the police station. I think the Devereux murder was the slasher. Now why would you think that? We never found a killer, said Strickland. Plus, there was no sign of gin or tape. But then again, what? Never mind, said Strickland. It happened on a Saturday night, just like the others. I know. Arnie brought the blue pickup down the hill. For half a minute, he disappeared below the hill, but emerged along the swamp. There he is. He's getting out of the truck. Strickland shook his head. Arnie always has to be on the edge. Does he have the food? Arnie rounded the hood and opened the passenger side. Then he lifted the heavy crate. No problem with his back now, George. He's carrying that food to the edge of the swamp. Strickland grabbed his radio microphone. Wendell! That must weigh a hundred pounds. Wendell! yelled Strickland in a louder voice. Oh, come on! Arnie set the box on a rock and retreated to the truck. He's back in the truck. Yo! said Wendell on the radio. Wendell, get over to the landfill entrance, pronto. Problems, George? Arnie Dewis, he just left food and supplies for Lester by the swamp. Well, arrest him, George. No, just bring him down for questioning. No sirens or lights on the cruiser. Why not? Just do as I say, Wendell. He turned to Jones. What do you see, Matthias? Nothing yet, said Jones. It has to be him, George. 
Jones kept the binoculars focused on the food box as Arnie pulled away, and a short time later drove back into the landfill. You know, Arnie is way too cocky. Yeah, with nothing to back it up, said Strickland looking down at the landfill. So he just drives out of here. You guys should question Muddy, too. One fool at a time. Jones saw movement at the bottom of the hill. Lester Larson, in his navy turtleneck and camouflage pants, looked from side to side. There he is! It's him, George! Strickland started the cruiser and spun down the town forest hill. Your suspicions paid off, Matthias. Just a side road theory. Hunch. Strickland's tires kicked back the road dirt as he swerved onto Shore Road. He flipped on both flashing lights and the siren. As he turned to the landfill entrance, Arnie's truck was parked next to the guard shack. Strickland veered past the waiting cars and around the trash mounds to the hill road. Jones raised the binoculars. Arnie had crawled into his truck and was headed away from the guard shack. Arnie's leaving. He can run, but he can't hide. At the bottom of the hill, Strickland traced the behemoth trash hill. The cruiser bounced as he steered over toward the rock, but the food crate was gone. Where is he? asked Strickland as he got out of the car. Jones ran over to the large boulder overlooking the swamp. Then he shielded his eyes from the sun as he panned the trash hill. Strickland turned toward the railroad tracks. This man tried to have Coco and me killed at that warehouse fire. I understand that. Strickland walked back to Jones. You know, I can name a dozen times when Hamilton Fletcher saved his butt. Locke would be up at Fletcher Hill moaning and crying that his son was going to jail. Something else was going on. Blackmail, said Jones. What blackmail? asked Strickland. I'm not sure, said Jones, surveying the trash. Well, Lester got away again. Jones walked along the dirt, compacted trash and long sheets of black plastic. A pungent stench lingered in the air. About 50 feet away, he saw footprints in the mud away from the pickup's tire treads. George, get over here. Somebody walked this area. When he turned, he saw the tracks disappear in the drier dirt, but diagonal to the rock. Jones pointed to a slit in the landfill plastic cover. You think? Let's pull it back. With Jones on one side and Strickland directly across from him, they tugged at the plastic. They peeled back the entrance to a burrowed-out tunnel within the dirt and trash. All right, Lester, you're all done, said Jones. I don't want this to get violent, shouted Strickland. We know you're in there. A buzzing sound, muffled, grew louder, and a bright headlight shined down the tunnel. Both Jones and Strickland leaped back. The little motor scooter with high-rise handlebars raced forward. Lester had no helmet and lifted his hand as he approached. A long, partially healed, linear wound covered his palm as he waved. Goodbye, suckers! The wound, shouted Jones. Outrageous. See the slasher, George? Impossible. Lester almost tipped in the mud, but then gained traction. An incredulous Strickland looked at Jones. Lester crossed the grass and then, like a proficient dirt biker, flew over the railroad embankment and onto the railroad ties. The bike and Lester shook as he hit every railroad tie and headed south toward Prince William. Are you kidding me? cried Jones. Did you see his hand, George? I saw it, said Strickland, taking out his phone. George, we need to check his blood type. Strickland punched in a number. He shook his head as the line rang. Dom, George, 
possible slasher heading down the railroad bed toward Green Station. He has the motorbike and a cut on his hand. Jones gazed back at the hole in the plastic. Unbelievable. It's Lester Larson, Dom. He was hiding at the Hamilton landfill. Right. Will do. Then he took his walkie-talkie off his belt. Wendell will arrest Arnie. I thought you said, never mind what I said, and muddy too. Who's going to let people in the landfill? I really don't care, yelled Strickland. He faced Jones. Why are you shaking your head? Because, George, this one is off the charts. Pure insanity. Jones and Strickland stood outside the cruiser at the Washington Street Bridge, south of town. Wind gusts swept up off the bay. Strickland looked through the binoculars back toward Hamilton. When his cell sounded, he handed the glasses to Jones. Jones focused toward Prince William as the tracks paralleled the bay. Strickland, no, Dom, there's no sign of Larson. Where are your men? Okay, good. It is. Well, if he's on the tracks, he won't be. Wendell has Dewars and Jacobs at the station. No, we'll be here till the train passes. FBI? Okay, Dom. What did he say? asked Jones. The FBI has personnel at Buchanan Point with a tracks loop into Green Station and Prince William. Other off-road vehicles are heading up the extension road. The road is dirt all the way to Hamilton in case Lester backtracked. Did I hear you say something about a train? The Canadian Northern, heading toward Hamilton. Well, that will clear the tracks, said Jones. You really don't know that Lester is the slasher. Strickland tilted his head. We have the motorcycle, if that's what you can call it, with the high-rise handlebars, and we have the cut on the hand and the fact that he was hiding and now fleeing. I'm waiting to hear from the infirmary about Lester's blood type. Jones shook his head. Lester is weird, really weird, but he's not a killer. Didn't he bring you and Coco into that warehouse to die? He was duped. He's just stupid. I won't argue that. The train whistle sounded in the distance toward Prince William. Eli's Crossing, past Toby Lake. That train will be here shortly. And where is Lester? asked Jones. The orange and yellow engine roared along the rising grade from the ocean. Strickland kept the binoculars trained toward Prince William. Jones's cell phone rang. Matthias Jones. The voice was soft and feminine. Mr. Jones, uh, this is Pierre. Jones could almost smell the perfume. Yes, Ms. Negrigio. Strickland's head snapped toward Jones. Pierre. Pierre, as you know, this case is still unsolved. I'm wondering if I can meet with you. I would be delighted to meet with you, Mr. Jones. I just adore younger men. Jones held out the phone and stared. I'm aware of your abilities. I beg your pardon? Oh, my prowess, yes, said Jones, as the mighty engine chugged up the track. I'm working with the police and think that your friend's death may have been connected to the Prince William Slasher. Prescient. I thought that right away when the first Slasher girl was killed down by the docks on Canal Street, her arms dangling in the water. I'm at the Cherokee, Unit 453, here in Prince William. But we can have dinner at the Chateau downstairs. The train was only a few hundred yards away and the engine noise louder. I would appreciate that. How about dinner at six at the Chateau? I will be there. Thank you, Ms. Pia. My pleasure, darling.
Jones tightened his face as he cut the call. The train looked as if it would smash the bridge and shook the wooden structure as Strickland casually leaned on the wooden fence rail. Jones placed his phone in his pocket as he watched the train head along the bare trees back toward Hamilton. When the caboose passed under the bridge, Strickland joined Jones on the other side. A diesel residue lingered in the air. If Lester was on those tracks, he's roadkill. He's not dead, George. You're talking about a guy who bet Arnie Dewis he could hang with a rope around his neck and survive. He did. Strickland faced the train, now nearing the center of Hamilton. Did I hear you talking to Peter? I'm meeting with her tonight in Prince William. Matthias, I talked to that woman for hours after Darlene's murder. She's so full of herself, as well as every man who walks into the Cherokee. And she has no idea why Darlene was killed, and neither do I. Devereaux was slashed by a razor. That's a fact. That's not in the report. Weapon was a blade and type of blade undetermined. No killer could be found and the whole thing just faded away. I wonder what Lester was doing at the time. He worked at the college, said Strickland as they headed back to the cruiser, but he was never a suspect. Where was that motorbike kept? At his house? Lester lives in a room under the stairs at the Fairmont dorm. But the bike, I believe, was kept in the athletic storage shed outside Lark's, your office. Strickland pulled out his cell phone. That needs to be checked. I know, he said as he speed dialed. Wendell, I need you to check the athletic shed for Lester or his bike. Strickland's eyes opened wide. What? He did what? Where are they now? We'll be right there. Matthias. What happened? asked Jones. Arnie hired LG and has clammed up, said Strickland, getting behind the wheel. Bentley? Right. Arnie has all the doer's money his family made on that lumber business. LG is not cheap and he's very good. And there's more. What's that? The FBI and Kevin Phillips are on their way over to Hamilton. The Prince William Slasher, Chapter 8, Hamilton Police Station, Hamilton, New Hampshire. Strickland trotted away from the cruiser. Windows yelling and arguing could be heard 50 feet away from the tiny brick police station. The police chief opened the wood screen door and Jones followed him inside. As the TV monitor behind the counter blasted, Froggy Finley stood on a side chair taunting Wendell. Wendell flailed his arms. His flushed face and bulging eyes gave him a subhuman look. You're a dumbass, Froggy! Wendell! shouted Strickland. What the hell is going on here? Wendell turned slowly. Froggy's confessing. Confessing what? He says he's the slasher, George. What? Froggy, you're not the slasher. Lock me up, Chief. I'm not locking you up. Now get out of here. Lester didn't do it, said Froggy. We'll see. Froggy moved up to Jones. Didn't get the guy you wanted for assistant. Mr. Big Shot. I could get a monkey and it would be an improvement, said Jones. Froggy put up his fists. Out, Froggy, said Strickland, before I send you over to the state police barracks. Froggy looked to his left and then to his right and then ran out the door. I'm Ned, said the bald cop behind the counter. He shook Jones's hand. Ned? Wendell, I'll talk to you later. Get over to the athletic shed and check out that motor scooter of Lester's. Froggy called me a pinhead, George. Goodbye, Wendell. 
Wendell picked up his hat but waited at the door. Where's LG? asked Strickland. He's on his way from court, said Ned, pointing at the TV monitor. George, PW4 is going to switch to the eye in the sky to track Lester. Hey, there's Carla Munez, said Wendell, raising his brows. Strickland squinted at the TV. Get out of here, Wendell. It may go national now that we know that Lester's the slasher, said Wendell. Jones pointed at Wendell, still in the doorway. We don't know that Lester is the slasher. The TV switched to a camera high above the shoreline in the railroad tracks. A dark-haired woman appeared in the helicopter wearing headphones and holding a microphone in hand. There she is, said Wendell. Wendell! Wendell backed out the door while still watching the TV. You're looking at a live shot over North Prince William in southern New Hampshire. Jones studied the tracks from the Washington Street Bridge. To the left was a large lake and then the shoreline and bay. for a jailbreak in Indiana. There's a possibility, according to District Attorney Herbert Lane, speaking long distance from Bermuda, that this man may be connected to the Prince William Slasher case. Wrong, said Jones out loud. Strickland's phone sounded. Hamilton, yes, I know what's going on with Lester. I'm sure his actions have nothing to do with what happened in Indiana. What makes you think he's the Slasher? I see. Nothing is definitive. I will keep the school out of it. Goodbye. Jones stared at the police chief. Image, George? Hey, Georgie! yelled Arnie from a rear cell down the hallway. Where's my lawyer? LG will be here momentarily, Arnie, said Strickland. Jones followed him down the hall. Arnie hung on the cell bars. Would you mind telling me why you were hiding Lester at the landfill? No comment till the time limit is up. What time limit? asked Strickland. No comment till the time limit is up. What does that mean, Arnie? LG gave me a time limit and told me to keep my big mouth shut for once. I'll second that. Arnie looked at Jones. Hey, I heard you were being hired as a cop, Matthias. No, Arnie. What about you, Muddy? I don't have no lawyer. We'll get you a public defender. We'll get LG for Muddy, too, said Arnie. Arnie, you're nothing but a troublemaker, said Strickland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strickland shook his head and he moved by Jones. Hey, too bad you took the choke, Matthias. What are you talking about? Couldn't get the coach you wanted, huh? Why don't you mind your own business, Arnie? Touchy, touchy. Jones held the van door as a green sports car convertible moved quickly into the Marlboro parking lot. Mainted Hall's pork chop sideburns and colorful paisley shirt gave him a throwback appearance. Jones was drawn into the space between his teeth as he smiled. Going out on the town, coach. Hello, Maynard. Nice car. Why, thank you. Thank you. We've had this vehicle for 11 years. It's one of our vehicles. Maynard crawled upward and sat on the convertible's door. You don't say, said Jones, looking at his watch. Driving out in the country is a hobby of mine. Reminds me of England up here in New Hampshire. Great, said Jones, sliding into the front seat of the van. Where are you headed, Jones? Jones's head snapped. 
If you must know, I'm going to have a meal at the Chateau in Prince William. Oh, I don't imagine you as a Chateau type of guest. Oh, really? Maynard, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to be late. Anything new in the slasher case? I have it on good authority that Lester Lawson is the slasher. I'm not so sure of that. Jones shut the door and opened the window as he started the van. And I read in the paper that he owned a motor scooter. I've seen him for the last ten years driving that scooter around town. What do you think of that, Jones? In your so-called professional opinion, of course. <laughs> Jones could not move the van with Maynard in the way. Maynard, I have to go. Just whom are you cavorting with? Mind your own damn business and move your car, shouted Jones. You don't order me around, Jones. I'm not one of your grunts. Jones opened the van door and bodily pushed Maynard toward his car. You move that car, you overbearing elite snob. I am a Hamilton College trustee. Good for you. Now move the car or I will. Maynard said nothing and swung back inside the sports car. He started the vehicle and skidded 180 degrees back toward Main Street. Jones stood with his hands on his hips. Doesn't anybody drive normally in this town? Jones, still annoyed by Maynard's intrusive questioning, stood below the wide-screen TV in the Chateau lobby. Still covering the slasher, they swung the camera in the late afternoon light from the ocean toward the lake and the railroad tracks beyond. Jones pulled out his ringing cell. Matthias Jones. Jonesy, you been watching the TV? Just the news summary. I know that chick, Carla Munoz, in the chopper. She comes in the club. Listen. Think this fish face thing is stupid. Lassen didn't kill Holly. Why was he hiding? Because he's a fool. Ask Dewis and the schmuck Jacobs. I want to know who killed Holly and it wasn't fish face. Maybe. I'm meeting with Pia, the best friend of Darlene Devernell. Coco laughed. <laughs> She's a high roller. Out of my league. Out of your league? Yeah. You're wasting your time. She'll eat you up. Plus, she must have 20 years on you, Jonesy. Proving somebody didn't do something isn't a waste of time. Don't quote your old man. He was usually right. Come over to the club later. I gotta make sure word gets out that it's safe in here. Good luck with the babe. I'll talk to you. Jones checked his watch and started down toward the restaurant. Then his cell rang again. He stopped just before entering the restaurant. Matthias Jones. Father, Jimmy Bottafino has an amazing arm. That he does. Joan and Chris Bottafino will be at Bingo Saturday night if you want to meet them. And I'll have Genevieve set an extra place at the table. Sure, I'd love to meet his parents. I think that kid can help us. I watched that commotion over in Hamilton today on the Rectory TV. Joan saw Pia, her light hair perfectly pinned, enter the lobby. Her smooth-skinned neck and frosted lips gave her an enchanting persona. She walked as if she were on a cloud bank. They still haven't found Lester Larson, Jim. You think he's a slasher? I don't know, Father. It's just a side road theory, but his height works against it. But who knows? Intuition? Correct. What does our esteemed district attorney say? Asked Gallagher. Haven't talked with Herbert Lane. Last I checked, he's still in Bermuda. 
Is there anything I can bring? Asked Jones. Luck. Bingo starts at 8 p.m. Meal at 6. Thank you, Father. I'm looking forward to it. Bye now. Jones slipped the phone back in his coat pocket. First, the perfume overtook his senses. He approached this classy woman with pinned-up blonde hair, alluring green mascara and soft lips. Pearls adorned her neck, and she wore silver bracelets on her wrist. Her teal evening dress had overlapping layers, yet the outline of a curvy figure of a woman far younger. Her skin was slightly tanned and cleavage tight, and the perfume lingered in the air. Pierre, Mr. Jones, what a pleasure to see you again, she said, extending her hand. Jones did not know whether he should kiss or shake her hand. This time he kissed. Nice. Andre, she said, summoning the maitre d'. My table, please. The maitre d', black hair combed straight back in his dark tuxedo, approached quickly. Jones felt underdressed in his blazer. Yes, Mrs. Negrigio. She took Jones's arm and led him behind Andre. Pia's corner table was slightly raised from the surrounding booths and tables. Her sweet perfume and articulate soliloquies indicated a sophisticated woman out of the range of Jones's world. Andre seated them, and Pia ordered a red wine not familiar to Jones. I know that Darlene was your friend. Darlene was my friend and confidant. Even Alvin was jealous. Alvin? Her husband. Divorced? Correct. He lives outside Seattle presently. He was cleared. He was in Prince William when Darlene... I just can't believe... Even after two years, she's gone. I'm sorry. Why couldn't the police find Darlene's killer? Either the killer was very smart or lucky, or the police weren't thorough enough. Maybe the FBI dropped the ball. I've studied Chief Strickland's reports. There are similarities to the Prince William slasher. I'm well aware of that. No gin or no duct tape, said Jones. Angela Lopez heard a motorbike. A witness? Bike or motorcycle? Motorbike, I think she knew the killer. Why do you say that, Pierre? Pierre sat up straight, accentuating her cleavage. That shop was locked after 9 p.m. every night. Unless he was hiding there, maybe he had the keys. She leaned forward. Jones tried not to stare. There's something the police don't know. Jones, in the process of drinking his chill water, set the glass back on the table. What might that be? He asked as the tall waitress appeared. Good evening, Michelle. Could you give us a few minutes? Yes, Pia. Jones leaned forward. Did somebody threaten her? No, and this must never get out. It would break Alvin's heart. She was having an affair. I was supposed to meet her lover that Saturday. And then she was murdered. Pia nodded. Do you think she was killed by her lover? She was not breaking it off, Mr. Jones, nor was she divorcing Alvin. It just kept going on. Her eyes watered. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Why would this lover kill her? Pia shook her head. Apparently she was very happy, and so was he. How did she meet this guy? It was the oddest of things. He was just there, although I never saw him. Jones wrote down the information on his pad. Did she say where she was from? I don't have that information, Mr. Jones. It was all secret. For over a year, she never even told me of the relationship. Pierre, why wouldn't you tell the police? 
Because Darlene is dead and it would destroy Alvin. Did you learn anything about this lover? She told me about him when I noticed the chocolates, the box on the table on Wednesday before she was murdered, Donnelly's chocolates here in the city. What's your interest in this, Mr. Jones? I was with Holly at Club Max before she was murdered. Club Max? Interesting. I wouldn't have profiled you for a Club Max man. I'm sorry. Take me there sometime, will you? Well, I guess I, I guarantee you a good time. After a protracted evening of conversation about Pia's modeling career, Jones was stunned that she invited him upstairs. Thinking quickly, he told her he had an appointment with the Prince William Police Department. She wrapped her arm around him as they entered the Cherokee's elegant lobby. Just like Pia, everything was perfect and overdone. You don't slip out of my grip that fast, Mr. Jones. I have plans for you. Jones produced a fixed smile. We'll meet again. That's an old song by Vera Lynn. And yes, we will. She pressed her lips against his lips, leaving lingering effects like a bell after the clappers hit the gong. Jones stumbled onto the sidewalk, yet he had only had one drink. He gazed back at the Cherokee's canopy and shook his head. Her perfume had soaked into his clothes. All the warnings about this woman were correct. Because of the van's numerous problems, he decided to walk downtown Prince William near the theater district. He was a few miles from Club Max, and the crosstown bridge's yellow and red lights shined in the dark nearby. Traffic continued to flow even at this late hour. There was a light mist in the air. He was still not sure whether Devereaux's murder was committed by the slasher. Being sliced with a sharp razor was a horrendous way to die, and the thought sent chills throughout his body. Ahead, the steps to City Hall, lighted by a series of street lamps, led upward to the massive gray stone building. An illuminated square sign with white letters read Prince William Police Station and abutted City Hall. The medical examiner's blue station wagon was parked between two cruisers. Jones could smell the salty air distinctly, something he had never experienced in the Midwest. A gray-bearded man in a light beige jacket moved down the police station's steps. Are you Dr. Morris? asked Jones. I am. You are Matthias Jones. I'm Clayton. He had a strong but smooth handshake. Tom McGill mentioned you. You're the new coach at Hamilton, and you solved your father's murder in Indiana. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. My dad was an investigator, so I guess that's why I tracked down his killers. McGill said you thought there was a connection between the Devineau murder two years ago and the slasher. I've tried to establish that link myself. And? Clayton stroked his gray beard. The razor, I'm certain, was a barber's razor, an old one, because... Each of these murders has rusty traces in the wound. Even the Devernaux murder? Correct. But why wait two years before striking again? Clayton leaned against the van. Maybe he didn't. Maybe we just don't know. Clayton? That is an excellent thought. I thought so, said Clayton, grinning. There were fingerprints on the tape over Holly Withers' mouth. Is there anything in the National Fingerprint Database? asked Jones. Clayton stroked his chin. No one has checked that. Just local and state. There was no need to. Now that's something at this point worth pursuing. I can do that. Was Lester involved in any way in the Devineau investigation? Clayton pinched the bridge of his nose. He was. He kept bugging me on the scene and then at my office. 
The FBI wasn't any help. I had Herbert issue a restraining order on Lester. Was he on the motor scooter at the time of the murder? Somebody was. I don't know. There was pressure, probably, from Hamilton Fletcher with the authorities. Was Lester ever a suspect? No, just an annoyance. So, there was a motorbike out there near the Alouette Boutique. According to one witness, Jones nodded. No suspects other than Lester and his scooter. This is true. I frankly don't think Lester did this, even with that cut reported on his hand. I saw it myself. Matthias, the Devineau investigation was minimal, incompetent, and jaded. Jones drove slowly in the van over the Devonshire hills. The glare of Prince William behind him and the scattered lights across the dark Hamilton hills ahead. Exhaust fumes leaked from somewhere and mixed with Piers' perfume. His cell phone rang in the darkness. Hello, Matthias Jones. Matthias, it's George Strickland. Having a beer on your boardwalk, George? Webster, fix those loose boards. Actually, I'm at the station. Scooter is missing from the athletic shed. After window checked the shed, I went down there myself. Nothing. Lester must have stolen it before he hid out in the landfill. Jones was tempted to tell Strickland of Devernow's alleged affair, but he wanted confirmation. Slasher has become a national story. Don Pacheco has officers cordoning off City Hall tomorrow. Now I understand why Herbert Lane is in Bermuda. Sure. He doesn't want to answer to the media, said Jones. Where is Lester, George? How does this guy get off the railroad tracks in the face of an oncoming train? So he could be hiding out there in the hills. Yep, and I don't think the media and the FBI understand this, but I'm compelled to advise them even if it means upsetting things on Fletcher Hill. Your call, George. Oh, by the way, Arnie and Muddy have been released. I questioned them for four hours. They were receiving notes from Lester put on the guard shack in the middle of the night. Apparently, according to LG, they had no knowledge of Lester's Indiana charges. Quoted some 1927 law to get them out. We had to ask Harry Graham over at the library to look it up. Don't forget Ohio. They still want to question Lester in Cleveland. I'm aware of that. What do you think? Is he the slasher? Jones shifted the phone to his left ear. Why would Lester kill anyone? I don't know. Maybe he just snapped after Ohio. I don't discount that either, said Jones. That I don't know, George. I don't know. Jones was summoned to Fletcher Hill by Hamilton Fletcher in a 7 a.m. phone call. By 7.30, he had parked the van near the Fletcher garage. The sallow-faced Hollings brought him inside and up to Hamilton Fletcher's private study off his bedroom. Hamilton Fletcher had dressed but had not yet tied his necktie. He sat at a laptop on an oval desk. I talked to Carl Rogers last night. Great. Below his smile, Jones was not happy with Hamilton Fletcher. Rogers was an outstanding back and understands the game. How did you track him down? asked Jones. Hamilton Fletcher looked up for the first time. One of my contacts recommended Kyle, but make no mistake about it. Matthias Jones is in charge here. Will he be here for summer workouts? Absolutely. I ordered him up here sometime this month, said Hamilton Fletcher as Hollings appeared in the doorway. What is it, Hollings? 
Sir, there are federal marshals on the property. Hamilton Fletcher leaped to his feet. What in God's name is going on here? Every time Ham takes a sales trip, all hell breaks loose. Jones followed him to the rear window. Men and women in blue vests with yellow-glutted FBI on the back fanned out across the backyard. Well, they're probably looking for Lester Larson on his motor scooter, said Jones. I thought that screwball was in Canada. Apparently he's back. Hamilton darted to his left and burst through the heavy wood doors to his bedroom. He leaned against the window at the far end. Dear God, this looks like the Normandy assault. He removed his cell from his coat pocket and punched in a number. Ham, there are federal agents crawling all over the estate. No, we weren't notified. I want you to call Richard MacGyver's office. Explain the intrusion and have him call me immediately. Right. Hamilton cut the line. I don't think Lester killed anyone, sir. Oh, well, like his father, he has a very limited conception of reality. If I had my way, he would have been fired before he was hired. I don't understand, said Jones. Hamilton Fletcher's phone rang and he quickly answered it. Yes, what is it? Oh, Richard, good. On whose authority does the FBI invade Fletcher Hill? Exactly. Get their asses off my property. And it would have been more appropriate if they had requested to come up here. Hamilton Fletcher hung up and Jones questioned whether the Fletcher patriarch had just nixed the line to a government official. Is there anything I can do, sir? Fine, Lester Larson. Jones was in his office creating a separate recruitment file when George Strickland appeared at the door. Strickland removed his hat and sat down in the side chair in front of the window. Living in a town with Hamilton Fletcher is like living in a dictatorship. I take it you got a call about the search for Lester, George. Exactly, said Strickland, looking at the case of bottled water. Have a water, George. Thank you. Strickland pulled out a bottled water and unscrewed the cap. I tried to tell him I don't have authority over the FBI. Jones set down the folder. Oh, don't feel bad, George. I heard Hamilton order somebody named MacGyver to get the FBI off the estate. I'm not surprised. Strickland wiped his forehead with the bottle. This whole slasher thing is getting out of hand. Jones pressed his lips. Come on, let's take a break outside. Sure. They moved down the corridor and into the lobby. How's the uh, house search going? Jones opened the outside door. I've got my eye on the Colonial in the corner of Shore Road. Oh, Professor Collins's house. The crime guy. Yep, said Strickland as they crossed the parking lot toward the storage buildings ahead. George, where is the athletic shed? Strickland pointed beyond outside basketball courts to a white clabbered building. Right over there. I'm just wondering if there's anything else in that shed that might be incriminating. Jones looked up at the rusted rim and metal backboard. When was this monstrosity put up? Don't know, but there was an outside game here maybe 20 years ago. An official college game? asked Jones. Yeah, Lark wanted to breathe the air of the good outdoors. According to legend, a young player named Snooky McKenzie scored 100 points. Well, I find that hard to believe. Harriet Graham says the athletic record books are in a safe in the basement of the library. Good luck in finding them, said Strickland as they reached the shed. Why? Apparently there was a severe storm during the game. I think maybe even a hurricane. 
Lark refused to stop the game. Jones just stared at Strickland as he took out his master key. I get it, George. I suppose Lark still talks about it. The storm of the century game. Oh, I can't wait, said Jones as he slid open the wood panel door. Lester's motor scooter was parked straight ahead next to a vaulting pole and a line striping machine. I don't believe it, said Strickland. Don't touch anything, Matthias. I wouldn't think of it. Looks as if somebody washed the scooter down. What in God's name is Lester up to? I'm not sure, said Strickland, taking out his phone. He placed a call to the FBI. As Strickland talked to the lead agent, Pearson, Jones began a visual survey of the shed. In the stuffy air, there were stinky boxes of groundskeeping material, as well as orange cones and paint buckets. Strickland turned as he hung up the phone. Well, asked Jones, the FBI is sending forensics over here. George, what about the rest of the shed? I know what you're thinking. The place is loaded with prints. Didn't seem important till Lester brought back the scooter. Hamilton won't like it. Hamilton doesn't have to know. So now Jones, stamped with his father's inquisitiveness about murder cases, is involved in the slasher case, not officially, although the police value what he might find out. Sufficiently curious, Jones meets with the owner of the newspaper, Tom McGill, to look at the Darlene Devineau file. An extremely attractive middle-aged woman has eyes for Jones. Jones likes the big white colonial on the corner of the common, but doesn't know how he can afford it. Lester Larson, with outstanding police warrants, may be in the area. And the seductive Pia is after Jones again. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I'll see you next week as the Prince William Slasher continues. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.